this week in our series on Matthew, having uh, taken uh, a little jump ahead to the end of Matthew uh, the last week or so in order to uh, look at Easter, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday. And we're returning now to our series to continue on in Matthew chapter 10. And uh, just as a little bit of a recap to get us back into where we were, we finished a section on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus's first teaching or first discourse, and there are five in Matthew. And then following the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew recounts and has an account of a series of works of Jesus in his ministry. And so we saw Jesus healing um, lepers who are the outcasts of Israel. Then we saw Jesus healing the servant of a Roman centurion who is an enemy of Israel. We see Jesus calming a storm. We see Jesus casting out demons. Uh, In other words, Jesus demonstrating that he is not only authoritative in teaching, but that he is authoritative in illness, he's authoritative over nature, he has authority over spiritual powers, all the areas in which we would normally consider ourselves powerless, Jesus proves his power and his authority. He's not simply a teacher, he is a worker of the authority and the power of God. And as you move past those works of Jesus into chapter 10 of Matthew, Uh, we come to a second teaching discourse. And in this teaching, we'll see it's very different than the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was describing what it meant to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was describing the qualities of a citizen, how a kingdom citizen acts differently and is easily identified as a kingdom citizen of heaven as opposed to a citizen of the world. The Sermon on the Mount is taught to his disciples, but it's also taught to everyone listening. It's an opportunity for those who are not yet disciples uh, to understand the principles and the character and the reality of the kingdom and what being a member of that kingdom means. In his teaching in chapter 10, Jesus now gives very specific instructions to his disciples, not to non-disciples. He's going to give instructions now to people Uh, who are followers of him, who uh, are believers in him, who have the Holy Spirit. And the instruction that he's going to give them is not things that non-disciples can do. Uh, If you're not a disciple, you can't do what he's instructing here. And so they're explicitly for his citizens and his followers and his church. And specifically in this second teaching or this second discourse, Jesus is talking about now the mission of kingdom people. As he continues to expand on God's kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom, All the stuff we saw in the Sermon of the Mount about being kingdom citizens, he's now talking about the mission of kingdom people. So as disciples of Jesus then, as as citizens of his kingdom, what is our mission? God doesn't just snatch us up to heaven the moment that we are saved and put our trust in him. God leaves us here on earth until our own appointed day. So is the Christian faith then only one of fire insurance? Do we simply believe for 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 or 60 years waiting for future glory? No, as kingdom citizens, we have a kingdom mission on earth. The kingdom is near at hand. It's not far away. It's not a far away heavenly kingdom in the clouds that we're waiting for. It's a kingdom that's making its presence felt in the here and now. And so as kingdom citizens, Jesus is going to teach us 
that we don't just celebrate the good news of the gospel, we are to spread the good news of the gospel. So I just want to set the stage for this teaching in the latter part of Matthew chapter 9. Uh, we heard the text read already in Matthew 10 that we're going to get to, but before we get there, I just want to set the stage in the end of Matthew chapter 9. And we see at the end of chapter 9, Jesus himself uh, setting the stage and explaining a couple of things about the mission. And the first one is the motive of compassion. So there is a mission motive of compassion. It says in 935, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So there's three quick things we see in this text and then a fourth one uh, in the verse that follows. Uh, the three things that we see here is that Jesus sees the size of the need. It says that he saw the crowds. And so he was going from town to town uh, throughout Israel. And there's probably about anywhere between 180 and 220 or 230 different towns or villages or cities in Israel at the time. And the population of Israel at this time would probably be in excess of 3 million people. So he saw the size of the need. He saw the crowds. He also sees the suffering. Not only are these crowds sick, but it says they are harassed and helpless. So he sees the suffering that they are enduring. And the suffering is in large measure due to the false teaching. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. These are sheep without a shepherd. They do not have proper godly guidance. And so they are harassed and helpless in addition to suffering from sickness. And then he sees the separation. He sees that there is a harvest, but there are no workers. They are sheep without a shepherd. So he says to his disciples that there is a mission need. There is a mission motive of compassion, but there is a mission need for workers. He says in verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so he says there is this crowd, there is this suffering, there is this separation. You, as my workers, need to go out into this and to serve. So when we think about ourselves as disciples, as kingdom citizens today, do we recognize that there are billions of people in the world without Christ right now? The suffering is hardly less, and the harassment or the poor guidance or the sheep without a shepherd situation has only increased. The harvest that Jesus is talking about is a harvest of salvation. Jesus wants his workers out in the fields harvesting for salvation because there are not just crowds of a couple million, there are crowds of billions who do not know the gospel. And so we are not only to celebrate the gospel, but we are to share the gospel. This is our kingdom mission. So that sets the stage for what we need to do. And the other thing here at the end is in verse 38 that's interesting is that Jesus says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, this is the supplication. We need to pray. We need to be on our knees before, before God. This work that we do doesn't happen prior to prayer. We need earnest prayer. We pray for 
lots of things, but do we remember to pray that God will always be raising up workers and that God will always be sending workers? Do we pray that we will be one of the workers that are for this harvest and that we will be working in our own field? But Jesus has around him his own disciples, and we are his disciples today. So Jesus gives instruction to those disciples and to us in terms of how we go into the fields to harvest, how we spread the gospel, not just celebrate the gospel. So our main text today, as I said, has already been read by Benjamin, and so I won't reread the text, but it's from Matthew 10, 5 to 15, and he's giving instructions to his disciples and where they are to go, who they are to go to, how they're to go, and who's going to provide for them. And so it says, these 12 he sent out. So this discourse of Jesus is specific to the 12 disciples. So as we're reading this, we have to have it in mind, and we have to have it in careful context. Uh, that means that we can't press in too closely on the specifics and apply them directly to us, because Jesus intends these words explicitly for the 12. But we also have this teaching of Jesus set in the context of his previous and later teaching. And we also have it set in the context of the whole Bible. And so in that context of Jesus' previous and later teaching, and within the context of the whole Bible, we can see that there is here application for us in the categories and the themes that Jesus teaches on. First, we see that Jesus again addresses the people his disciples are to reach. He says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep, of the house of Israel. Now, the crowds Jesus looked on were primarily people of Israel. And here Jesus is telling his disciples, this is your first stop. This is where you go first. This is the good shepherd, as Jesus often called himself, going after his sheep. And this is just as God promised would happen. In Ezekiel 34, 11 to 12, again, we go back to Ezekiel who fantastic prophet who just lays things out so clearly from the word of God that he hears. He says in chapter 34, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that they have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. So God makes this promise and he makes a promise similar to that among many of his prophets. He says the good shepherd is going to arrive and he's going to go after his sheep. He's sending out his under shepherds out to the lost sheep of Israel now in this text. Jesus is saying to the 12, you need to go to Israel, to those sheep who are without a shepherd. And this is the part of the teaching that's very specific to the 12 disciples and sent on this specific meeting, on this specific mission. They are not yet actively going out to the Gentiles. Jesus is sending the 12 to Israel. They're not going to the Samaritans. They're not going to the ends of the earth. But that will come in the future. It's just not happening now. And we've already seen several times in Matthew where he has made it clear that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating is a kingdom that is for all people. But the point at this point in history, Jesus is beginning with Israel. Just as the father said, the lost sheep need their shepherd. God has to fulfill his promise to his people. Not only that, but they are the people Jesus was born into. They have the promises and the law. They have a relationship with God that spans thousands of years. So here is where Jesus starts with the inbreaking of his kingdom. He starts with the people of Israel. And as we know, Matthew is going to end his gospel 
with Jesus telling his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this isn't just about Israel, although the instructions to the Twelve are. This is a kingdom for all nations, and Jesus is going to expand this mission and this mandate in the chapters to come. So when we read these commands here, we also understand them in that later context. As Jesus' disciples today, we don't limit ourselves to one kind of people. As Jesus goes on to declare, we bring the good news of the gospel to all who are in need. We declare it to the diseased, the dead, the despised, the demonized, from any class, creed, or nation. So those are the people that we are called to reach on this mission. What are we to proclaim? Verse 7 says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pain, give without pay. So here we have the proclamation that Jesus says is part of our mission. Just as Jesus engaged in the ministry of the kingdom himself, he trained his disciples to do ministry the same way. And it's a two-part ministry that we are always participating in. The message of the kingdom, which is the gospel, comes first. The first task that Jesus sets to his disciples is to proclaim the kingdom. This is the gospel that Jesus preached. The kingdom of God is near at hand. Enter into the kingdom. And this is the message that Jesus expects his disciples to be able to proclaim, to be ready to share and to be actively sharing as they go out into the people. Proclaim my gospel. The kingdom is at hand. Now, the gospel that we share today is the gospel of Jesus Christ. On this side of the cross, we are no longer looking for the Messiah to come and establish his kingdom the way the people of Israel were. The Messiah already has come and has established the new kingdom and the new covenant by his death and resurrection. And so we are not waiting to see what Jesus will do. We have seen what Jesus has done. And so while the disciples in this context are preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom has arrived and has arrived in Jesus, we are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has accomplished what he has come to accomplish. The good news is that death is dead, as we talked about last week, and the light and the life has come. And that's what we proclaim. That is our gospel that we take into the world to the people. That's what the disciples and the apostles proclaimed after the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 3 to 4, Paul says it this way when he's proclaiming it. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So you see, Paul knows the gospel to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or John, if you look at the disciple John after the resurrection of Christ, he puts it this way a few decades after the life of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. He says in 1 John 1, 1 1-4, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ 
And so you see here that John is now, similar to Paul, proclaiming the new gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to know what I saw, what I heard, what I touched, what we disciples experienced. It's Jesus Christ. He was real. He came. And we had fellowship with him. And we want you to have fellowship with him. That's the gospel that the disciples are proclaiming. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, he says that all followers of Jesus need to be ready to share the gospel. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. So there you've got three of the heaviest hitters in the New Testament, Peter, John, and Paul, all stressing the gospel and the mission that we have as Jesus' followers to proclaim it. If you've put your trust in Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you've fallen in love with Jesus, if he is your treasure, if he is your the, the desire of your heart, then this is the mission you're on. You're on this mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not only celebrate the gospel in our own life, we are meant to share the gospel. But there's a second part to this proclamation ministry that Jesus gives his disciples. Remember, it's a two-part ministry. He goes on to say, after saying, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, you receive without pain, give without pay. And so the word of God does not go out without transforming and life-giving ministry that accompanies it. The gospel is going out into the fields that are ripe for harvest. It's going out in the hands of disciples who will heal and care for the ill, who will rescue the dying, in some cases, specifically here, actually raising the dead, who will restore the outcasts and the marginalized, the lepers, and who will liberate the spiritually bound in sin and bound in demonic forces. So this is the second part of all Christian ministry, not only the spoken gospel, but also the lived out gospel. And notice the people who are the recipients of this ministry. It's the ill, it's the dying, it's the outcast and the bound. They are the primary focus of gospel ministry because they are in greatest need to be helped and to hear the gospel. To see what I mean by that, to see why God puts so much emphasis on people who are struggling and who are suffering and why his compassion is so great for them. We can look at just a couple of verses in Exodus that really opened up my eyes to this reality and the incredible importance that mercy ministries play in our proclamation of the gospel. They are so closely aligned to our speaking the good news to people. Exodus 6, 8 and 9 says this, and you have to understand that at this point in Exodus, the people of Israel are in captivity. The people of Israel are in slavery. And Moses is trying to give them good news. He is preaching the gospel of his time. The good news that God is going to rescue his people out of Egypt and lead them into a promised land. This is what he speaks. He says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh, harsh slavery. When I read those verses, probably for the 50th time, but finally saw them for the first time, I saw what was happening here. And hopefully you can see it, that Moses is preaching the Old Testament version of the gospel, the good news. Moses is proclaiming the word of God, that he will bring the people of Israel into the land of promise, and God will give them the land for their possession. That's the good news. That's the gospel from God to Israel at that time. 
But we notice in verse 9, as Moses spoke thus to the people, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So you see, the people were in such dire circumstances, brought about by the fallen nature of the world, brought about by their own sin, brought about by the consequences of their actions as they were enslaved in Egypt, that they could not even hear the good news. They first had to be freed from their broken spirit and slavery. Then they would be able to hear the gospel that Moses was preaching. This is why, as disciples of Jesus engaged in gospel ministry, a large portion of our effort is in alleviating the effect of sin on our culture and the effect of sin on people. There are people who are so enslaved by the world and so broken by the sin that has been committed against them or that they have committed themselves that they can barely hear the gospel at all. They can't listen until they are set free from the bondage and released from the poverty of spirit that they are in. The gospel message does not come without real transforming and liberating power over the circumstances of people's lives so that they can respond to what is preached and what is proclaimed. As Jesus says of himself when he first teaches in the synagogue, he's quoting Isaiah in Luke 4, 18 to 19. He says when he comes of his own ministry that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So these people are out, are part of our mission. That's, that's why we proclaim and what is proclaimed in our mission. But Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples that, that God will be the one who provides. So we have the people that we are to reach. We have the proclamation. We have the ministry that's going to be involved in our proclamation of the gospel. And now Jesus says that God is going to be the one who provides. He says, you received without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or, or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. So the first thing that Jesus says here is he continues to elaborate on the mission that his disciples are on. He says, while you are serving the people who need the gospel, don't enrich yourselves from those people. Don't be supplied by the people that you're ministering to. You're not supposed to go to the sick and the dying and the marginalized and the impoverished and the enslaved and get them to supply your needs. And he also says don't preload your supplies before you start ministering. Don't save up a bunch of money or acquire what you think you need before you start doing kingdom work. Go now, start with nothing or start with what you have. God is going to provide for you, not the people you are serving. And so we see from these specifics that the purpose of gospel ministry is not for the enrichment of the ministers. The disciples don't enrich themselves from the recipients of their ministry and care. And likewise, as a church, we don't expect the community or the loss to support our church. There isn't anything we do that someone can't approach empty-handed and receive. We expect God to provide. But how will he mainly provide? Jesus answers that too. He says they and we are supported not by the people we serve, but by our co-laborers who join us on our task. See what he says in the following verses. He says, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. 
And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now, Matthew's wording at the end of chapter 10 or verse 10 and at the beginning of 11 is a little bit clumsy, but Luke records the teaching that Matthew is getting across here a little more clearly, I think. He says in Luke 10, 5 to 7, whatever house you enter first, say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So Jesus says, as you go, you will find people supportive of your mission. And so rely on them for provision. Don't go from house to house in the community. And don't take anything from the lost people that you are trying to reach with the gospel. God will provide through the people who are on mission with you. You will find people who support you in what you're doing. And we also realize from this teaching, Jesus gives his disciples what we can expect to always, that we can expect to always feel under-equipped for the task. So as Jesus is teaching here, his disciples are listening to this, they're thinking, it doesn't sound like we're ready to accomplish what it is you're asking us to do. We feel pretty under-equipped to, ta- to tackle this mission. But the size and the resources required for our mission as disciples must always outstrip the resources that we have. When we look at the mission that is around us in this community, We should always consider ourselves under-resourced, or we should always consider that God is calling us to a mission that is more than it seems we are able to accomplish. It will always seem like we have less than what we need. And that is the case. If we consider meeting all the needs, even of just Halliburton, even just gospel-specific needs, or even just one aspect of the needs of Halliburton, let's say mental health or domestic violence, or unexpected pregnancies, or care for children, or the marginalized and the infirm, even if we just picked one need in one county and we tried to meet it fully, we can see that it would outstrip the resources that we have. And so our vision for ministry has to be that big. Our vision for what God is calling us to do must outstrip our resources. We must feel the pressure of always being under-resourced to meet the need of those fields that are large and ripe, but the workers are few. And that's okay. That's how Jesus intends us to work on his mission, because our resources mean nothing compared to God and his resources. And we must trust his resources and we must trust that his resources will be provided by the people who are sympathetic to and who join us in our mission, just like the disciples did as they sought out people of peace and households that would feed and provide for them. It was the people that were alongside them in mission that would provide. That's the people, the proclamation and the provision for our mission. And now Jesus talks a little bit about the procedure. He says, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet and leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Jesus speaks here of houses of peace, or Luke says, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. And I'm not going to spend a a lot of time unpacking this, but it's a very interesting notion in terms of the process or the procedure that we use in mission. That as we go out on our ministry, we will be supported by and encounter people of peace who are for us and not against us. 
Not only will they supply us, but they will provide opportunity for ministry. And I'm reminded here of the early months of ministry when Chris Weir came and we were trying to get permission to get into the high school and even to run the lunchtime club and just get some sort of Christian presence there again. And I told Chris at the time, I said, we need to find a person of peace there at the high school who will be our supporter. And the new principal came along and Chris met with him and he had a Christian family and a Christian background and he was very sympathetic to the need of the students and to the work that we wanted to do there. And all of a sudden we had our son of peace and Chris got permission to be on campus at the high school and to run the lunch club and there's been lots of fruit from that. But Jesus is saying here, hey, there is a way that I am making for you as you go forward in mission. It's going to look like you are under-resourced. It's going to look like you are under-supplied. But I'm going to supply you through the people that are on your team, who are on your side, who are on mission with you. And not only that, I'm going to provide opportunity for you to be encouraged to continue in ministry by providing people of peace to you in the place that you minister. The Apostle Paul encountered this exact same situation in Corinth. As he was preaching and planting the church there in Corinth, he was getting discouraged and he was getting afraid for his ministry and he was getting afraid even for his life. But God spoke to him and God said this in Acts 18, 9 to 11, speaking to Paul as he's ministering in the city of Corinth. He says, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Jesus says, the Lord says to Paul, I have people of peace here, Paul. Stay and minister. You will be supported. But then Jesus goes on to say, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So this procedure or this process of mission and ministry, it is one clearly and first and foremost of generosity, but it is also with discernment. It is a mission of mercy, but with expectations. And it's also a mission of urgency. We see all of these things here in this text. Jesus says, don't waste your time. You remember Matthew 7, 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't throw your pearls before swine. Now Jesus says that for people who will not listen, shake the dust from your feet and move on. This speaks to the hardness of hearts we may encounter and where the gospel seed will not take root, but also to the urgency of the message. Get this message out quickly is what Jesus is saying. From town to town, don't let a town further away or later on in your plans miss out because you persisted with people who were not willing to hear. Shaking off the dust from your feet. This, this picture that Jesus paints here, um, it points to a practice that the Jews um, participated in when they returned from Samaria or when they returned from pagan countries. They shook off the pagan dust from their feet so that they didn't bring heathen or pagan dust into the Holy Land. It was sort of a pre-COVID sanitation routine, I guess. But that's what Jesus is describing here. He's saying to these people, if they will not listen to the gospel, then shake off the dust and move on. Consider the judgment waiting for these people who will not listen. Even as this mission of generosity, this mission of the gospel, this mission of mercy is going out, Jesus says there are consequences if you will not listen. It is generosity 
with discernment. It is mercy with expectations. And he says of those people waiting or that who don't receive the gospel, he, he says to them, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So he's saying there's accountability that these people have when the message is proclaimed. If they hear your gospel and they will not listen, if they will not respond, they will be held accountable. So now just imagine, we've considered the the people, we've considered the proclamation, we've considered the two-part ministry that we have as Jesus' disciples, we've considered God's provision through his sons of peace, And now we consider the procedure that we go through or just one part of the procedure or the process that we go through as we minister, um, working through people that God provides and also being diligent to make sure we stay on task and that our mission is urgent. But just at the end of this, just let's consider this judgment that Jesus proclaims. He says there's accountability for these people when this message is proclaimed to them. If they hear the gospel and they don't listen, they will be held accountable. So now just imagine if if Jesus says that these people in these small towns in Israel who are hearing the gospel of the kingdom as the word spreads just from these 12 disciples by word of mouth, if he says even for these people in these towns that they will be accountable for judgment because they heard that word, now consider how accountable our country and our culture is. A country and a culture and a society that has had access to the gospel in every kind of form for hundreds of years, who has access to the gospel in every language. They see the gospel presented in art, in cinema, on stage, in preaching, in movies, in television, preached in every context, printed in every place, heard from every corner. How accountable are our friends and our neighbors and our family members to respond to a gospel so thoroughly preached and so widely proclaimed? It is, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. So they are without excuse. Perceived not just in nature, but perceived in the gospel proclaimed so thoroughly in our culture and in our world. So we have to ask ourselves, are we on mission with God? Do you pray earnestly that his mission would be full of workers? Are you ready to proclaim the gospel yourself and to do the work of reconciliation with the lost, with the outcast, and with the marginalized? Who are those people in your life? It may seem to you like an insurmountable task, but God is trustworthy to provide. As you find households and people of peace who will join you in your ministry and support you, many of them who are listening to this message right now. That is the point of the church, to be those people of peace who are supportive in ministry, not just missions far away, but mission here in our own town, to send workers into the harvest, to send ourselves and be the workers in the harvest ourselves. We are kingdom people on kingdom mission. We don't simply celebrate the good news that we have received, but we are to share the good news with the world. Jesus intends us to share what we have found. There is a world in need, and it's in need of the gospel, and it's in need of these ministries of mercy that Jesus equips his disciples to do. Jesus has equipped us. He's equipped his people to bring the gospel and to bring this ministry 
to our community. Let's pray together that Jesus would send us. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this teaching of Jesus that is specific to his disciples, but so applicable to us. That there are a people that we need to start from a heart of compassion with. And having that compassion, we need to trust in your provision. And we need to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And we need to continue to minister to those who are sick and who are dying and who are lost and who are marginalized and who are bound. Father, that we can in some measure relieve their suffering so that they can hear the good news of the gospel and turn to you and become brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, we take seriously the urgency which you make clear at the end of this teaching. That as the gospel is proclaimed, there is an accountability that people have, an accountability that we have to warn and to take heed of that warning. That without the good news and without putting our trust in what Jesus Christ has accomplished, we will be judged someday. There are consequences for our decisions and our actions. And so, Father, help us to be people who spread that warning but most importantly, spread the good news of the gospel that Christ has come and that he is here to rescue. Help us to be those workers on mission in your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.